welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Pastor Tim. If you're new here, we're going through the book of Jonah. And if you want to keep your Bibles open, open to Jonah 3, I'm going to kind of walking through the text with you of a a lot of different thoughts. I'm going to try to summarize them as best I can. You know, one of my favorite movies is the Bill Murray classic Groundhog Day. Anyone else? Is that one of your favorites? Okay, good. It's about a weatherman named Phil Connors, and he's reporting on Groundhog Day from Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. And he cares little about the assignment, except for he does care about a very attractive producer played by Andy McDowell in the story. Now, weather prevents him from leaving this boring assignment and the boring town, so he's forced to stay overnight, where he discovers the next day that he's replaying the same day over and over again. He met the same people, he did the same thing, and each day he woke up only to relive this endless cycle of repeat until he learns a lesson. Now we come to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I'm going to make the claim that Jonah is living his groundhog day. God is going to keep teaching Jonah a lesson until Jonah learns it. Now, Jonah, in his groundhog day, is seeing that his story is going to keep repeating. Now, I've mentioned this before, how the book of Jonah, it chronicles the story of the disobedient prophet begins in chapters 1 and chapter 2. It tells how Jonah has been given a command, and Jonah fails to obey it. And it's about the prophet, the pagans, and the sea. And then the second half, chapters 3 and 4, it also tells how Jonah is given a command and fails to obey it. And it's about the prophet, the pagans, and the city. And so I want you to take a look at the screens about the parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 1. We have in verse 1, chapter 3, God's word comes to Jonah. Same thing happens in chapter 1. God gives the message to be conveyed, the response of Jonah, the word of pagan leaders, the pagans' faithful response to God's word. Those things in chapter 3 has a direct parallel in chapter 1. So Yahweh is giving Jonah a second chance to do things right. See, Jonah is destined to be confronted by the same stubborn sins he refuses to repent of. I'm calling it our biblical Groundhog Day. We keep getting the same confrontation from God. He gives us plentiful opportunities to grow where we are stuck, to correct our wayward ways. He wants to keep giving us more chances to do the right thing. Now we're going to see in verse 2 that God's word comes to Jonah. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it and the message that I tell you. Now, keep in mind, this has the exact same parallel in chapter 1. It's the same thing, except it has less emphasis on Nineveh's evil. I'm going to highlight that in just a minute. Now, if you jump to verse 3, it says that Jonah arose... And he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now that 500-mile journey to Nineveh from Israel would have taken about a month, just so you know. And then in verse 3, it continues. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. 
a three days journey in breadth. Now, the three days journey probably could refer to the massive size of the city. It was also maybe another way of simply saying it was a great city, an important city in the eyes of God. And then verse 4, it says that Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Now, I want to keep in mind this. I did a lot of study on this um, this past week. Uh, What I discovered is that there actually was a tradition or a practice in these ancient times where a visiting diplomat would get the audience with the city officials. And so I want to give you uh, an idea that maybe Jonah is entering Nineveh less like a street preacher prophet and more like a visiting diplomat. That Jonah perhaps is coming into the city and meeting with officials and proclaiming this word from God. Now, keep in mind the Assyrians, and Nineveh is a major city or perhaps the capital of Assyria. They're polytheists. They believe not only in a few gods, but multiple, multiple gods. And so they actually would seek out advice and confirmation from foreign diplomats, foreign prophets, in order to determine if there was an important announcement from a different god. And so perhaps Jonah is actually being welcomed into the inner circle, the leaders, not just on the street preaching this randomly, but he has an announcement. Verse 4, and he, Jonah, called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I did the math in here, and you see Jonah traveled into the city, and he preached a sermon of about eight words in English and about five words in the Hebrew. And many of you should take notes because now you have biblical evidence that my sermons should be shorter. Right there. There's an example right there. The Jews, keep in mind, were enemies, even at this time, of the Assyrians. And Nineveh was a key city. And so I want you to imagine again that God asked you to go into Nazi Germany and to announce Germany will be overtaken by the allies in 40 days. Who would like that assignment? Okay? We understand that Jonah might have been scared to go. But we're going to find out later, it's not just that he's scared. It's actually, he just simply doesn't think they deserve God's mercy. And I get it. You get it, right? But this is his assignment. God's wrath is being announced. It's coming to judge Nineveh. And I did a bunch of different studies as well exactly what the evil of Nineveh was. We're not exactly sure. We know that they were a violent people. They were very violent in their conquests, amputation of appendages, um, destroying people, torturing people that they captured. And even within their own city, there was violence against one another. Some great injustices were happening not only to foreigners outside the city, but even within the, with their own people. And so we want you to see that how God's wrath had every right to come to Nineveh. But I'm trying to make the case here that actually in chapter 3, what the writer does is describe God who gives the same announcement to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you But he changes the word from chapter 1. He doesn't highlight Nineveh's evil. I think it's very interesting. I think the author of the story, but also we see God himself in his own words, the focus is on actually Jonah's disobedience. His 
refusal to fully obey the Lord. You see, God's wrath is coming to judge Nineveh, but Jonah is being challenged as well. So I want you to notice that the Bible is often asking you to look at yourself before you point fingers at others. I think that the Bible, in this case for Jonah, the emphasis on Jonah's need to repent still, even as he's being called to go preach this word to the Ninevites. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 3, Why do you see that speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I'm so glad I don't need to hear that verse today, right? Aren't you? Is it possible that God wants you to recognize something in you that needs change? I think we see God focusing on Jonah's need to obey, even as the word is coming to the Ninevites. We're going to take a look at that a little bit more. Let's keep going. In verse 5, we're going to see this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So these cruel Ninevites are showing repentance. They're responding to the message from Jonah's God, Yahweh. Now, we don't know if Jonah is surprised or not by the results, but we're going to find out later in the next chapter that he's not happy about it. Sorry to break the ending for you all, but he's not happy at all that their repentance has made God's wrath not come down upon them. We'll see in verses 6 and 7, it says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Let everyone turn, he said, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king himself believes Jonah's warning, and he steps off his throne in repentance to avoid the disaster. I want to give you a little side note. I did... I studied as much as I could on this king. There's not another reference to the king of Nineveh anywhere else in the Bible. or We don't see any other documents talking about the king of Nineveh. So your options are that this is really the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria happened to be in Nineveh, or maybe often sat in the capital at that point, or maybe this is a governor of the region. We're not sure what it is, but whoever this person is, he's very, very important. And what we see is that the king calls for repentance from the entire city and even the animals. (laughs) Even the animals are asked to repent. That's how radical they went. Now, I want to point out that the Ninevites, they're trying to appease Jonah's God with fasting and cries in hopes of deterring this particular God's wrath. And so I'd like to say it this way. The Ninevites, who are polytheists, are basically trying to throw everything they can at this potential disaster. Like, well, we'll repent, you repent, let's even have the animals repent. Let's do whatever we can to try to stave off this disaster. And it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not do it. Now, the Bible doesn't say that they put their full faith in Yahweh and became converts to Judaism. There's no record we have of like the nation of Assyria, the empire, suddenly turning to the one true God, okay? And in fact, we'll see in later stories, the Bible records, we'll see that 
this actually didn't seem to last very long, this repentance, whatever it was. Um, There are some pastors out there who think this is the greatest revival ever recorded in history, and I'm not convinced that they really fully turned their hearts to the Lord. They did enough to stave off this disaster, right, to get in trouble, but not so fully that we have record that they really gave themselves fully in obedience to the Lord. So what we see, though, I think this story is pointing to a future Christ whose ultimate sacrifice will avert God's holy wrath. Remember, we've been talking about how Jesus, we can see him as a true and better Jonah. This whole story basically shows the need for a greater sacrifice, for a true repentance that we all could turn to. And it finally gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus that we need to see God's wrath averted. And this is what God did on the cross, that God's wrath was fully averted because his justice is poured out onto himself, onto his own son, who took on the wrath of God, who took on our sins so that we can have a way back to God. Now I want to highlight one thing, though. It says that I want you to notice how the king repents, but he left the throne first. And here's the thing. You can't repent while you're still sitting on your throne. You can't repent while you're still maintaining control. You can't really repent if you're still holding on to things. And so what we see, at least in this moment, the king is desperate. And desperation precedes true repentance from deep rebellion in our hearts. That lasting change can only happen when you come to the end of your own rebellion. That grace can be received only by empty hands when you've let go of these other false saviors. And so we're left again for that question for ourselves, that throne that keeps us holding on to our other functional saviors, that God might search our hearts and mind, that we might let go as well. I have a few observations about the text. There's a whole lot of other, other stuff I could say, but let me mention three things. First of all, from this story, we can see that this whole story of Jonah is about God giving a second chance. See, not only to the pagan sailors and to the pagan Ninevites, but especially to Jonah. Jonah needs a second chance. You're going to see and a third chance and a fourth chance. So I don't want us to forget that our God loves to give second chances to those who call out to him. Michael W. Smith, he's a well-known, multi-award-winning Christian artist. I grew up on his music. This is him pictured with Amy Grant. He started his whole career out writing for Amy, and they both grew famous, and Michael's uh, fame kind of increased within the Christian community. What people don't generally know is that he was stuck in a depression and a drug addiction that almost took his life very early on in the beginning of his ministry. That alcoholism and drugs led to a nervous breakdown and him sick on his kitchen floor convulsing for three hours thinking he was going to die. And he remembers his dad came over that night in the middle of his addiction and his convulsing on the kitchen floor. And his dad, a man of faithful prayer, who loved his son even despite his wayward ways, His dad put his arm on Michael on the floor, and he just said, no preaching. He just said, it's going to be all right. 
And Michael says something happened that night, him coming to the end of himself. He says, God met me in that dark time on that kitchen floor. He got a second chance. And God took him from that lowest of the low point of near death, of complete rebellion against God, of being a hypocrite, right? He's beginning his music ministry as a drug addict and and an alcoholic. God brought him literally back to life from that point of death, but he brought him back to life within. And now years later, decades later, millions of people sing songs that he writes that point to the hope he has in Christ and points to the goodness of this God that gave him a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. You see, Jesus came to give the world a second chance. He gave me one. If you're a follower of Christ, he's given you at least one, probably more. God is a God of second chance. You see, it's not only the Ninevites who need to repent. It's Jonah. It's you. It's me. Here's the thing. God doesn't owe us a second chance, does he? He doesn't owe you a third chance. He doesn't owe you a fourth chance. And guess what? He doesn't even owe you a first chance. He doesn't owe that to you. God, in his graciousness, decides to take on his own wrath by sending his son, Jesus. God does not owe us that. It's his graciousness. It's his mercy. That's the God we serve. He's the one who initiated. It wasn't our cries that initiated God sending his mercy and grace. No, it was God's goodness. He's the one who initiated it. We deserve God's wrath, every one of us, not just the Ninevites, but instead we get the mercy of a gracious and generous father who sent his son Jesus to take on that cross. But whoever should believe in him will not perish, but at everlasting and good and perfect eternal life in God. So we want to let that sink in, that we have a gracious father who loves to welcome home wayward children. Second, third, fourth, infinite chances when you're his child who always hold on. See, for the Christian, the image of Jesus hanging on a cross and purposely bestowing saving mercy while being executed, that should move us as Christians. A God who not only had to come to save us, but he wanted to come. Jesus took the cross, the Bible says, with joy in his heart. How could he be joyful? I imagine that Jesus thought of you and thought of me. And the thought of us being eternally separated from him was so painful that the cross becomes a joy. God not only had to come, he wanted to come. Oh, this God of the second chances, isn't he good? God is always ready to receive back his wayward children, like Jonah, like the Ninevites, if they'll truly repent, like Michael, laying on a kitchen floor like you, like me. The book of Jonah reveals a good God who loves to give second chances, not because of your goodness, but because of his. He's a God of second chances. Secondly, change doesn't come until you face your brokenness. We see it in Michael's story on the ground. We see it in Jonah's story in the belly of the fish, right? 
Jonah teaches that God will graciously and patiently wait for his children to finally learn the lesson of obedience. You see, it's Groundhog Day for Jonah. He's learning it again and again. He's going to keep facing the same brokenness until he gets it right. That's a gracious God who is persistent to help us to get out of our stuckness. You know, the definition of insanity that we love to quote, doing the same thing over and over again, thinking you'll get a different result. Isn't our God good to stick with us? Second, third, fourth, fifth chances. See, Jonah repeats the same mistakes from chapters one and two. He's not obeying God fully. We'll see that in chapters three and four. And so Jonah will learn the painful lesson that it's a waste of time to keep disobeying the sovereign God the sovereign God that you and I have given our life to, why do we keep disobeying? And God in his patience and his mercy keeps patiently giving us another chance to get it right, to keep shaping us, growing us, sanctifying us is the Bible word, getting it right. Jonah is living his groundhog day until he learns his lesson. And may the Lord search our hearts and minds for the different lessons that we need refinement in. Like Jonah, we are grateful and need God's gracious persistence in our life. You know, Jesus confronts his disciple Peter in John 21. You can look at the story later. Similar to, I think, how Yahweh is confronting Jonah in this story. See, after reinstating Peter to the ministry following Peter's three denials of Jesus, this is the resurrected Jesus, he comes to Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to take care of the flock take care of the church, because you're going to be a leader in my church. But then Jesus says, you're going to face a lot of suffering for being my leader. Now, keep in mind, Jesus reinstates Peter to the ministry. And then John, who writes the gospel, and he reports that he walked by Peter in that moment, right after he gets reinstated. And in John 21, verse 21, it says this, when Peter saw John... He said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, what does that mean? Peter was just told by Jesus that he would suffer. Just got the great call of Jesus to lead his church. And then Peter says, well, what about him? (laughs) Is he going to suffer too? And then Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus is saying to Peter, Keep your eyes on me. Don't be concerned about their call, their deficits, their specs, right? Look at your own life with me first. Keep your focus on me. We like to look at others, their deficits. Well, look at those Ninevites, Lord. Look at their evil. And the book of Jonah, the story keeps coming back. What God is concerned about is Jonah. He's concerned about you. How are you not fully obeying him? Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on what I am doing in your life before you start pointing fingers at other people. Dr. Henry Cloud says this, when we change our behavior, it's because the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Consequences give us the pain that motivates us to change. Let me say it a little differently. When the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing, that's when we change. We can't stay the same. We can't stay in that kitchen floor. 
I can't stay in the belly of the fish anymore. I can't keep getting stuck in the same bitterness and excuses and addictions and blaming. When you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, change can happen. And so we stop looking for the sins of others. We always keep looking for the evil Ninevites. It's them. It's the other people. And God brings it back. What about you? How are you and me doing? You ask yourself that. How are you and the Lord doing? We stop looking at the sins of others when we need to deal with our own. We stop comparing our ministry to others. And we need to start focusing on our own faithfulness to Jesus and listening to him. So let me ask you this. How is the Lord calling you to repent of some disobedient way in you? I know it's easy to look outside and the others, but let's pause and just look. Lord, search my heart. Holy Spirit, help me to see. Where am I stuck? Where I don't even recognize, I'm just settling for the same. Help me to stretch beyond to the next step. Perhaps even asking, how is God calling you to serve him this season? Because we don't want to let you see the real or imagined deficits of others to distract you from your own need to come before the Lord, to place your whole life before him, to recognize your stuckness somewhere. And then the answer is called to be fully obedient to him. There's a third thing I want to offer. I'm speculating, but I'm going to mention it. I think Jonah is being asked to live up to his name. Give me a moment here. Jonah, or really Yonah in the Hebrew, it means dove in Hebrew. And it's the exact same name in Hebrew of Jonah. So Yonah, Jonah, dove. Now, the J sound does not exist in Hebrew. So Joseph is really Yosef. Jerusalem is Jerusalem. And in the beginning, in chapter 1, we are introduced to Jonah or Yonah as the son of Amittai. And so literally, Jonah's name is the dove, the son of truth. So work with me here. I think it's a very ironic name for this disobedient prophet. The dove, the son of truth. And we're going to see from beginning to end, God is keeping on his prophet to get more in line with God's ways. So what we see is that the Yonah, or the dove in the Bible, is not just a beautiful, lovely bird, but it's really this very symbol-rich creature in the Bible. For example, in Genesis 8, verse 11, the dove is sent out by Noah, and it comes back with the olive branch in its beak. It was the proof that the waters were receding and that the peace was returning after the chaos of the flood. We all know waters and flood and seas represent evil and separation from God, right? Because I've been teaching that the last two months. And so we see the dove as a representation in this story of peace coming out of the chaos. And so dove as a symbol of peace. We've seen that before, right? The dove, peace. The Yonah is also a symbol of intimate love that some also take as a parallel to God's covenant love with Israel. Song of Songs, chapter 1 and chapter 5, uses this idea of the dove symbolizing love. And then we see, thirdly, in the New Testament, maybe the most powerful symbol of the Yonah, the dove, that might be found in a metaphor of God's appearance in Matthew 3, 16. 
Jesus, when he was baptized, went up directly from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming on him. And so we see is that God uses a dove or a Yonah to declare Jesus as Messiah, the true Son of God, the only one who can take away the sins of the world. And thus the name Jonah implies peace. The name Jonah implies love. It implies God's very saving presence. Jonah, the dove, the messenger of truth. How ironic. As Jonah lives his Groundhog Day story, that God is trying to refine him to help him live up to his name a messenger of love, one speaking and living the truth. You see, our reluctant prophet Jonah up to this point is revealed as actually a deserter full of disdain and indifference to the messenger of love and truth that his name implies. He's not living up to his name. He does ultimately preach to the Ninevites, but as we'll find out in the next chapter, spoiler alert, Jonah is not happy at all that the Ninevites have been spared God's wrath. He's mad at God that his preaching is successful. Jonah, the messenger of love, is not living up to his name. And I believe God is looking for a church that will live up to its name. We are the body of Christ. We are his very representatives in a world in need. And so... I want to close with asking us, are we living up to his name? I'm going to give you five scriptures with five different describers, descriptors of what does it mean to live up to the name of a Christian. First of all, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, it says that we are ambassadors for Christ. As ambassadors, we get to show the world what a good and loving God looks like. We draw unbelievers by the power of the Spirit to gaze upon God's goodness Every day, we're ambassadors. Secondly, Ephesians 5.1 says, we are the beloved of God. Because we did nothing to earn God's love, we can now live securely and freely knowing we can do nothing to lose God's love. Do you know you are the beloved? That should set you free. Thirdly, Colossians 3.16 says, we are companions with others on this journey of faith that we admonish one another with God's word while growing as a community centered on the gracious love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, we are called companions as we walk with other people. Some of them coming to know Christ for the first time. Others were companions helping them grow in more obedience to God's ways and God's word. Fourthly, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6 says, we are servants of the Lord. And that means that we as saved people should naturally serve people. I wonder if you wake up, you realize, I'm a servant of the Lord. My life does not belong to myself. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. I will go where he says to go. I will say what he says to say. I'll do what he says to do. We're servants of the Lord. And Jesus reminds us that freely he who have received, now freely give fellow servants. If Jesus has taken the cross, we get to take up our cross yearly, take up our cross quarterly, <laughs> take up our cross daily. I'm a servant of the Lord. Lastly, 
Philippians 3.20 says, we are sojourners with a heavenly citizenship. That means that this world, as we know, it is not our eternal home. And so we hold on to earthly things very lightly because we're sojourners, we're travelers in this temporary world that God one day will come back and make all things new. And for eternity, we will spend on this new heavenly earth with the king himself. So we hold on to our successes lightly, right? We hold on to our health lightly. We hold on to bank accounts lightly. We're sojourners. We're traveling through. This is not our final home. We're citizens of heaven with an earthly call to give glory to God. See, Jonah was supposed to live up to his name as this messenger of love and truth. But he resisted the sovereign call of God. And the Bible tells us as Christians, which literally means little Christ, it tells us we are the body of Christ. We are ambassadors. We are the beloved of God. We are companions. We are servants. We are sojourners. But the world tries to seduce us with other false titles for smaller names like successful, strong, attractive, popular, independent, smart. There's not bad things. But if you hold on to those titles too tightly, they'll become your idols. God is the only one who truly loves you because he loved you before you ever did anything to earn your name. His love is the only love that isn't dependent on your performance or your perfection or any title or any success. It doesn't matter if you lose all of your beauty. And I look out, you're beautiful. But guess what? It's going to fade. God says, I never loved you because you're beautiful. I never loved you because you're good. I love you because I am good, God says. You are my beloved, chosen before the creation of this world. So live with the end in mind, friends. Let's live up to our name. Don't hesitate to obey God when he calls. He might just use you this week to give someone out there a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance or a fifth chance to hear the call of God in their lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, right now, we don't know exactly what we are supposed to do to be faithful to you, but Lord, would you reveal to us maybe something even specific this week where we can obey you more deeply? Or would you reveal to us where we're stuck, where we're in ruts, where we're refusing to follow you, Lord? Lord, would you remind us when we're pointing fingers at those other people, those evil people, those sinful people, instead of pointing back at ourselves, you have a work to do in us. Again, places where we're blind to, places where we're stuck. But we hold on to names and titles that define us instead of being defined as you define us through your word. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know that they are the beloved of God. Maybe they've never surrendered their life to you. They would confess you, Lord. Confess you as the only true Savior. Would confess their sins of trying to live life apart from you and throw ourselves on the floor in our hearts and say, Lord, only in you is true salvation. And Lord, I pray for us longtime Christians. Lord, forgive us for being so blind for the ways that we haven't been obedient. Lord, thank you for second, third, and fourth chances. For me, you're so patient. 
Grow me, change me, that I might be used for your glory, pointing to your goodness to someone who needs to see your hope. Lord, thank you for your presence here today. We continue to worship you, to recognize you, and to praise you. Lord, may our praise not be empty praise, not just words on our lips, but truly change us from the inside out. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.